Last week I warned you that James was putting up the ball peen hammer and taking out the sledgehammer. And I am reporting back to you this week and saying that he is not putting it down yet. Uh, he talked about the tongue, this beast that we have to tame, that no man has actually figured out how to completely tame his tongue. Now, that's what he was saying last week. This week is a continuation of that, but more specifically, he's going to talk about wisdom. Where does the wisdom come from that you have been garnering? Is it wisdom from above or is it wisdom from below? And those are the two sources of wisdom that James is going to expound on. So open your Bibles with me to James chapter 3. We're going to get through chapter 3 and hopefully through chapter 4 as well, because it all really um, is along the same line of thought. So we're gonna, we've moved fairly slowly through James just due to some other things we had going on Sunday mornings, but this week we're really going to try to push through uh, these chapters here. James 3.13, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Some awesome opening words for us this morning. And one of the main themes of James as an entire book is wisdom. And we're going to see wisdom very specifically this morning, but James himself was wise, growing up next to Jesus Christ, having Jesus Christ as your older half-brother. You know, there is some wisdom that James would have gleaned from Jesus himself. Now he's in this letter passing on a lot of the wisdom that he's gleaned over the years. He does so by instructing the reader to do certain things. In fact, he uses 54 imperatives, which are command verbs, in 108 verses of this letter. That works out to about one (coughs) command verb for every two verses. He is commanding a lot, and he's asking a lot of the believers who's reading this letter. But along with these commands, he gives some advice for determining the origin of wisdom. We see these two main sources of wisdom that I briefly mentioned, above and below. And wisdom can come from either of those sources. Not all wisdom is from God. What a tragedy it is to see Christians who are lacking in practical wisdom. Because that's not what God has intended. Your spiritual life shouldn't be looked at as a category in the rest of your life. But it should be looked at as something that governs every category in your life. There should, it should permeate between the categories. Everything you do should be informed by your spiritual life, your relationship with Jesus Christ. When a Christian is lacking in practical wisdom, they need only to ask God for it. We see back in chapter 1, James writes, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. God isn't going to criticize you for asking for wisdom. He knows (laughs) that we don't know anything. I mean, literally, we know closer to nothing than we do everything by a, a far margin. We know absolutely nothing, and God knows this. 
And he is a good father who gives good things to his children. If we ask him for wisdom, he's happy to provide. And the word of God is useful for our everyday living. It can inform our choices. Before you were saved, you didn't care to ask for wisdom. Decisions were very simple. What is in my best interest? What satisfies my desires the best? Those are the only questions you have to ask because you're governed by your flesh. The thing that satisfies your flesh is the thing to do. But now, being transformed, renewed, and created again by Christ, you are not ruled by the flesh, but you are ruled by the Spirit. And you know there's something more to it than what your flesh has in mind. So now you seek wisdom to make the tough decisions. You know that there is something more that you need. And we also know that there is a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is simply an awareness of facts. Anyone can have knowledge. Wisdom is the application of the knowledge. If you are wise, you apply the knowledge that you have. I can know from previous experiences that a stovetop is hot. But if I ignore that fact, I don't apply it to my life, and I go over and stick my hand on the stovetop, that is not wise. That is not a proper application of my knowledge. But if I see the burning hot stove and I keep my hand away from it, I'm wise. I have applied the knowledge that I already have. Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. That's from 1 Corinthians 8.1. Later on in the same letter to the Corinthians in chapter 13, he writes, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And so we see that knowledge itself, um, along with faith itself, is worth nothing. It is the application of knowledge. We've already looked in chapter 2, it's the application of faith that is worth something. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Here's the thing. If you're wise, you don't need to tell anyone that you're wise. It will be made apparent by the way that you live, by your conduct, how you conduct yourself. Since wisdom is the application of knowledge, you'll be able to see this play out in your life. It's actually very tangible. You can't see what someone knows, but you can see how they act and how they apply what they know. This word meekness, it's a calmness of disposition or a gentleness of spirit. In the meekness of wisdom, wisdom from above, this godly wisdom that we're talking about um, brings meekness with it. If you remember back in Matthew 5, 5, Jesus said that the meek will inherit the earth. Same word that's used here in James. This is actually the only autobiographical feature or characteristic that Jesus ascribes to himself. He says, I am meek. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, he says, I am gentle, which is this word, <laughs> prius, and lowly. And heart. Christ said, I am meek. Christ, the wisest man to walk the earth, describes himself as meek. These things are inextricably intertwined. So, first, if you have wisdom, 
It should be apparent by the way that you live. Secondly, if you have wisdom, you will also have meekness. This is because you have a right view of yourself. A good way to remember what meek means is just to cut the word in half. Me, ick. (laughs) You have the right view of yourself. And if we viewed ourselves as God views us, that is the right view of ourselves. We are sinners. We are inherently sinful. But by the blood of Christ, we are sons of God now. That is the right view of ourselves. I can do nothing, but everything that I can do is Christ through me in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This is the wisdom that doesn't come from God. This is the wisdom from below. If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts. And this is our first clue as to where this wisdom that you might be gleaning comes from. Bitter envy. And we can do a little bit of unpacking here. Envy is the Greek word zelos. Sounds like zealous, doesn't it? And that's exactly what it is. It means something like fervently jealous. There's a fire burning in you. And we all know that envy creates a fire in us. Sometimes envy can even be born from bitterness. We see bitterness and envy linked here in our scripture. Bitter envy and self-seeking. We have to take care not to let ourselves let bitterness creep into our lives. It's so easy to do. Uh, We just went through Hebrews. We just looked at Hebrews, and the writer of Hebrews warned us that bitterness can spring up quickly. In Hebrews 12, 16, he writes, Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. He also says that by pursuing peace with all people and holiness, you can avoid getting caught up in this bitterness. But truly, it does spring about quickly. We have to keep an eye on our hearts to make sure that we're not falling into that trap. Bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts. It's the selfish desires. And we'll talk more about selfishness as we get into chapter 4. Do not boast and lie against the truth. Verse 15, this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. Verse 15 introduces us to the three adversaries that we'll hear more about in chapter 4, the world, the flesh, and Satan, the enemy. First, earthly. This wisdom it does not descend from above, but is earthly. That means that it's originating from the world. Sensual means originating from our own flesh. And what do we mean when we say the flesh? The flesh is simply referring to our human nature apart from God. It is our natural disposition, like an animal. Animals are not governed by the spirit, only by their flesh, only what satisfies them in the moment. And apart from God, we resort to much the same behavior as an animal, and that is the flesh. It says demonic, and this word means originating from Satan and literally proceeding from an evil spirit. Wisdom from Satan. Satan himself is wise. He is a wise being. He's been around a lot longer than I have, a lot longer than any of us have. And that gives him some time to pick up on some things. 
He is wise and he can confer that wisdom. That is not the wisdom that we're looking for. So these are things that we have to guard ourselves against. The world, our own flesh, and the enemy. 16, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. We can identify the world's wisdom, this wisdom that's earthly, sensual, demonic, because it brings envy and selfishness. Although this wisdom may seem enticing at first, it ultimately leads to destruction. And as our text says, it leads to confusion and every evil thing. But verse 17 tells us how we can recognize wisdom from above. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. It says first, pure. This wisdom from God is never going to lead you into something that is impure. Wisdom from God, from above, is pure. Then peaceable. You're praying about which way to move, and your heart is right. You should have a peace about the way that you're stepping. There shouldn't be something that is glaringly unsettling to you in the way that you're moving. We also don't want to overemphasize the sense of feeling, though. So yes, you should feel peace about where you're going, but we don't want to go all the way to one side or all the way to another side. We don't want to blindly step somewhere, even though it feels unsettling to us. But we also don't want to place too much emphasis on just how we feel about something. Because our hearts can lead us astray, and they often do. But there's a healthy middle ground here. There's a great peace that comes with sitting yourself down right in the middle of God's will. There is a peace that comes with that. Then peaceable, gentle. This is a different word from the word that was used and translated as meek earlier. This is a little bit simpler, just meaning equitable, fair, mild, and gentle. The wisdom from God brings about this gentleness. It says, willing to yield. This is a big one. You have to be willing to yield to God. The shepherd is never dependent on the IQ of the sheep. The shepherd leads, and the sheep's job is to follow. We only need to be yielded to him. We need to be willing to let him lead, and he will do the rest. Now, let me ask you a question. What is one sure way to eliminate your flesh as a possible source of your wisdom. Yield your heart to God. That is a sure way. If you are completely yielded over to Jesus Christ, your flesh is not informing your decisions. Are you actually willing to do whatever he tells you? Whatever answer he gives to your prayers, are you willing to accept that? You know, it's too often that we pray with an agenda. We pray to get something that we want, selfishly. And please don't mistake me saying that for me saying that we shouldn't pray for certain things. We should. And in fact, a little bit later, James is going to tell us, you do not receive because you do not ask. So ask for these things. So yes, ask for specific things, 
but there's a caveat here. Do not, you do not have because you do not ask. The qualification follows. We can't just ask for anything and demand that God provide it like a little genie in a bottle. James writes that we ask and do not receive because we ask amiss, that we may spend it on our pleasures. That's the key. It all comes back to the thoughts and intents of the heart. Why are you asking for this specific thing? Is it to fulfill your flesh? Or is it to actually do what God is wanting you to do? Are you asking according to his will? Are you hoping to get a specific outcome that just satisfies you? Or are you actually in it for God's glory? This is the question. Are you completely yielded to him? Or is your asking fueled by bitter envy and self-seeking? Next, he says, full of mercy. Wisdom from above is not harsh. It is full of mercy and good fruits. Just look at what comes of this wisdom. You can tell that an apple tree is an apple tree because it produces an apple. An apple tree won't produce a pear, won't produce a banana. Be a fruit inspector. Wisdom from God produces good fruits. Inspect the fruit and you can tell where it came from. He says, without partiality. And James already spent a great deal of time and effort writing about the evils of partiality in the church. Wisdom from above will be without partiality. Without hypocrisy. Last one on this list here. And it should come as no surprise that hypocrisy is not brought by wisdom of God. Verse 18. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And there is no chapter break between verse 18 of chapter 3 and verse 1 of chapter 4 when James was writing this. It's really all one thought. He says, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? This is a rhetorical question. He's saying it does come from the desires for pleasure that war in your members. And I mentioned that we would see those three adversaries that we talked about in chapter four again, the flesh, the world, and the enemy. And this is our introduction to the flesh. Verses one through three warn us about our own flesh. Verses four and five warn us about dangers in the world. And verses six and seven warn us about the enemy. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. These two verses can be looked at in the macro all the way down to the micro. The macro view, we can look at the whole world and see very plainly that there are wars. We have wars between competing countries, competing factions, even wars within countries. What this verse is telling me is that this war results from the desires of man's flesh. And this is usually how it goes. Two or three, a handful of men want something that they're willing to fight for. And it just so happens that these two or three handful of men 
have the power and the means to bring about change. They do so with violence. It's the desire that they have in their hearts for whatever it is that they're going after that leads to war. Then if you look at it in a little bit smaller view, we can see in the church, there's also contention. There's disruptions. There's conniving. There's backstabbing. There's little skirmishes that pop up in the church. Of course, we deal with these things occasionally. Um, It definitely should not be uh, the main focus of a church. I would hope that that would not be the case. But, of course, whenever we have several people gathered together, people are messy. And so is the church. I had the opportunity to go to a pastor's breakfast at Tarleton. And some of the administrators at Tarleton were there kind of mixing in with us. I got to talk to one administrator, and she asked me when she realized that I hadn't been doing it for very long. She said, "Uh, Kaysen, what was the most surprising thing to you when you came into the ministry, when you started preaching? And I actually had to think about it for a second. And I finally came up with an answer, and it was, well, it's messy. It's not, right now I'm pretty put together behind the pulpit. But when I step out of the pulpit, the put-togetherness ends. And you have to get down in the trenches. You have to get dirty in ministry. And the dirt does not come from God. The dirt is either by our flesh or by the world, sometimes by the enemy. It is our fault that the church is messy. It's not God's fault. If everyone focused on obeying the word of God and doing what they could do to guard their own hearts, and we just stopped worrying about how everybody else is doing in their spiritual journey, Um, as far as obeying, this would be so simple. And the church would actually be a better place. But um, the church is the best dysfunctional family going. We are. And we are bound together by something that is stronger than actual familial blood. Being bound together By the blood of Christ, we are the best dysfunctional family going. In the micro, in our own hearts, we see this verse ring true as well. Sometimes our flesh rises up and fights a war against the spirit that seeks to govern us. And as Christians, we all fight this battle. We have once been crucified to the flesh. The flesh is put away, but it's not dead. It constantly wants to take back over. But the spirit allows us to conquer the flesh. If you want a little more on this war against our flesh, I'd encourage you to read through Romans 6 this week. In a nutshell, Paul encourages us to yield the members of our bodies to the Spirit. And in this, we overcome the flesh. Now, verse 2 here describes these believers' sinful actions. They desire, they kill to obtain, and they do not stop to pray about their desires. And even when they do stop to pray, they pray selfishly that they might increase their pleasures, not glorify God. In this, we take note that your flesh can actually encourage you to pray. However, it will be according to your own selfish will, not the will of God. And in this, we have to take great care. What is the intent 
of your prayer? What is the intent of your heart? Well, if the heart is so important, wouldn't God give us a way to navigate it? Of course he would. And he did. It's his word. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And that's one reason we need to constantly stay in his word. It helps us see our own heart. The next verse says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word lays bare our intents to be searched by God. Verse 3 reads, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Amiss is the same Greek word for miserable and evil. It's kakos. It also means improperly or wrongly, which is the definition that's used here. We ask improperly, amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Your prayers are selfishly motivated, or as James said earlier, self-seeking. And this is what we need to take care against. Verse 4, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This adulterers and adulteresses is specifically speaking of those who have turned from God and chased after the things in the world. Spiritual adultery is being married to Christ, yet loving the world. What a tragedy it is. So he's not necessarily talking about fornicators, although that is lumped into the category of the world. Um, That is definitely included, but not specified here. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Just as the flesh is human nature apart from God, the world is human society apart from God. Very much intertwined. Society is made up of a bunch of individuals. When individuals turn away from God, turn back to their carnal nature, society is the same way. Society, um, the world, is human society apart from God. Now, there are four dangerous steps that take the believer in the wrong relationship with the world. First is a friendship with the world. And that's outlined in James 4.4 right here. The second is being soiled by the world. We already saw that in James 1.27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Being spoiled by the world. Three, love with the world. This is an issue. This love here is from the same root as agape. It's a self-sacrificial love but it's placed in the wrong thing. It's placed in the world. If we are self-sacrificing for the world, this is an issue. This is a wrong relationship with the world. Number four, conformity to the world. As outlined in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Conformity to the world. And that's the end of this wrong relationship with the world. It's conformity. 
We are not called to blend in with the world. We're called to stand out from it. And as you conform to the world, you will be judged with the world. Just look at Lot. Lot made himself a home in the world. He moved into a city he knew he had no business in. He made himself, he made himself a home there, and it got the best of his family. Towards the end of his story, you see his daughters getting him drunk, sleeping with him, and then getting impregnated by him. The world that he was living in had seeped into his family. He had become conformed with the world. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? All this last little quote means, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, is that the Holy Spirit longs for your love. And when your love is placed somewhere else, he is jealous. He wants your love. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. These two verses, 6 and 7, warn us about the enemy. Satan uses pride to accomplish his ends. And Christians who live for the world and live for the flesh become proud. And Satan will absolutely take advantage of that pride. He says, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And we can resist the devil. We can lean on the word of God as our defense against Satan. And this is just what Jesus did when he was being tempted. Luke 4 records that account. And the Holy Spirit will enable us to use the word to our defense. But first, we have to submit to God. Then we can resist the devil. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Those are some pretty harsh words from James. It's so important for us as Christians to examine our lives, to see if we are being bested by any of these three adversaries. The rest of chapter four is an exhortation given by James in light of what he just wrote. The exhortations are this, a warning against pride in verses eight and ten, eight through 10, a warning against criticism in verses 11 and 12, and a warning against arrogant self-confidence in verses 13 through 17. Verses 8 through 10, I'll read again. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. This is our warning against pride. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. How wonderful is it to read this? And this is just so encouraging to me, but at the same time, it's condemning. And this is why. We know that when we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. If that's the case, and God is feeling far from me right now, whose fault is that? Who does that fall back on? It's not God. 
if God feels far from you, that actually falls back onto you. If you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. And that's something that we certainly can do. We can draw near to him. How do we do that? Spend time with him. Spend time in his word. Let it soak in. Spend time in prayer, in conversation with him. If you have a friend and you never talk to them, you're not going to know much about them. You're not going to exhibit the same things that they exhibit. But if you have a best friend and you spend every waking moment with that person, you're going to start to look a lot like them. You know, the way that you carry yourself, the way that you talk, some funny linguistic things, you know, some funny phrases you might both say, they rub off on you. You know, in my almost seven months of living with Summer, I can see more of her in myself than ever. She's beginning to rub off on me, and I can see myself in her. Sorry. (laughs) When you spend time with someone, you get to know them, you draw near to them. Same thing with God. But we are promised that when we want to get close to him, when we put that effort towards drawing near to him, he will return the favor. He will draw near to us. And that is a wonderful promise. He is only far from you because you chose to remove yourself from him. And verse 10 says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Psalm 75, 6 and 7 reads, For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. In other words, our promotion comes from the Lord. Back in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, James says, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation but the rich in his humiliation. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another. This starts our warning against criticism. Do not speak evil against one another. Brethren, he who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? How often are churches divided over criticism? Much too often. That's the answer. Much too often. Because if we are under one body, we should be of the same mind. We should be of the mind of Christ. And Philippians tells us that the mind of Christ puts others first. It exalts others above ourselves. If we are all in that same mind, we all have a right view of ourselves and of others as blood-bought children of God, we will not have criticism. Um, And this is a harsh criticism. Something that divides, creates dissension. We saw James talk about the tongue last week, and here is another instance of the tongue getting in the way, breaking things apart. In Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5, Jesus teaches that believers have the right to help others conquer their sins, but they must first judge their own sinfulness. If I've got a plank, in my eye, what right do I have to criticize the speck in your eye? Furthermore, I can't even see the speck in your eye well enough to help you pick it out if I'm swinging a plank out of my eye, right? So we have to 
take care of our own needs before we can actually help with others. When we judge other Christians without love and mercy, we are making ourselves lawgivers. And God is truly the only lawgiver. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? If all of us would devote ourselves simply to obeying the word of God and not investigating to see how well others obey it, our churches would actually have harmony and peace. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. This is our warning against an arrogant self-confidence. Pride, criticism, and self-confidence. The three warnings that James has just given us, all three of those things go together. Humble people pray for God to help disobedient Christians and They try to love them back into faith, love them back into the sheepfold. The humble know how to say, if the Lord wills, as they make their plans for each day. However, these believers that James is writing to were boasting of their plans and anticipated success. They're saying, ah, it's... It's nothing to just go into the city, buy and sell a little bit, and we'll get rich. He warns them that this carnal boasting and this arrogant self-confidence is very dangerous. Tomorrow is so uncertain. We know nothing about tomorrow. Only God knows. And to think or even to say that we do know about tomorrow is actually calling ourselves God because he's the only one that does know. Psalm 90, 12 says, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Number our days because the time is short. It is even as a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now this verse, verse 17, effectively sums up the chapter, but it also tells us something important that we can not only sin by deliberate action, but we can sin by neglect, by not doing the things that we know we should do. If we do not do something we know we should do, this is sin. Chapter 4 made it clear that there were carnal divisions and disputes among the believers that James is writing to. And one cause was the selfish desire of many to be teachers, back in chapter 3, verse 1. But the basic cause was simple disobedience. There was this lack of true separation from the flesh and true separation from the world. And it's tragic when brothers in Christ are together in discord rather than unity. Psalm 133 uh, talks about the blessing that is unity. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. 
It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. How blessed it is, how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Can two walk together except they be agreed? So in conclusion this morning, um, you've probably heard Johnny Cash singing about keeping a close eye on this heart of mine. Now, he was meaning it in a slightly different way, but that is basically what we should be doing as Christians, keeping a close eye on our hearts, on the deepest intents of our hearts. We can do that through the Word of God. The Word of God is a sharp sword. It's able to divide between soul and spirit. It can tell the thoughts and intents of our very hearts. Stay in your word and stay introspective. Okay, don't, we don't want to exalt ourselves by being introspective, but we want to search out those things that are not pleasing to God. And then we take them to God. Um, we've used the example many times. It's like a purifying fire. If you heat up a precious metal, it turns into liquid and the impurities rise to the top. Then whoever's doing the process can scoop off those impurities. And when the metal hardens again, you're left with a more pure product. That's what the word of God does to our hearts. It lets the impurities rise to the top so they can be scooped away and we can be made more like Christ. So stay in your word, stay diligent, study it, read it, let it soak in. As we close this study, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank mm-hmm. you.